Well, again, thank you all for coming out to this first midweek service. It is, uh, as Neil said, it's amazing to think about all the things that have happened in this room, uh, in this place. It's also amazing to think about all the sermons that have been preached behind this pulpit, the one I'm standing behind. Uh, before Frazier was Frazier, we were Clayton Street, and so this one comes from Clayton Street. And so it's amazing uh, to stand here uh, this evening with you. Uh, and as Neil said, please continue to pray for uh, Louise and Danny. I don't have the exact figure, but right now, uh, we took up an offering Sunday. Right now, we're over $30,000 in supporting the church plant. Yeah. yeah. I am so thankful, so thankful uh, for that. Uh, it's amazing what God is doing. Uh, as we come to our text tonight, uh, we're actually going to be looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, but I started with the text uh, just before it, in verses 21 through 24, uh, because uh, Tyler preached a few weeks ago on Luke 10, 1 through 20, about the sending out of the 72. And what we see in verses 17 through 20 is that the 72 return, and when they return, they're very excited. And they're excited because of the power that they've been given in the name of Jesus. And Jesus tells them, whenever they come back, all excited, he tells them in verse 18, he says, Remember, guys, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He says, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, he says in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then we read the verse in verse 21, that same hour he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is rejoicing in three things here. This is very important to understanding and setting up for the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, he rejoiced in three things. Number one, he's rejoicing in the revelation of spiritual truth. We see that in verse 21. Then in verse 22, we see that he is rejoicing in the revelation of the divine knowledge about who he is, who the Son is. And in verses 23 and 24, he's talking to his disciples. He's also rejoicing in the fact that he is the one who reveals this spiritual truth. He is the one who reveals this divine knowledge about who he is as the Messiah, as the Son. Now, uh, in doing that, in setting this right here before uh, what we read and we continue to read, we see that Jesus is making this very important point that the rejoicing that we should do is about his work in salvation. His work in salvation. Do not rejoice that the uh, demons are subject to you. No, no, no. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And this gives the context for what we read in verse 25 through 37. So as he is rejoicing, thanking the Father for this divine revelation, this knowledge that's now being revealed on the earth because now the mystery of God is being made known, as Paul would say in Galatians. What we see now is that the very next thing that happens, it says, and behold. Luke doesn't stop. He just goes on. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Whenever the text says that the lawyer, the theologian of the day, stood up that's very important language to realize because the teachers of the day, as we know, would sit down and then they would teach. We see Jesus do this at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We've also pointed it out in Luke's gospel as we've been going through this. So it's interesting that the theologian, the lawyer of the day, decides to stand up 
because that's what pupils would do. That's what the students would do. And so in this moment, uh, we think, or it looks like it's a sign of respect that he's standing up and he's letting Jesus the rabbi sit down, but it's kind of a challenge because the text tells us, Luke tells us his motive in this, doesn't he? He says he stood up to put him to the test. And so this lawyer, this theologian of the day, who is standing up in this moment, he's actually standing up to challenge Jesus in kind of a fake humility. And he says to him, he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there are really good questions in life, and then there are great questions in life. This is actually not a bad question. However, the question is flawed. The question has a serious flaw in it. But let's look at what happens. Whenever he stands up and he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, Jesus replies back and he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, Jesus says, the law has the answer. And you know the law. So how do you read the law? You know, it, it, it's, it's very important to realize that Jesus is pointing back to something that God has done in the past that is very important and a major revelation about what it means to have eternal life. Now, when Jesus says to this lawyer, he says, you know the answer. Um, it's very important uh, to realize that he not only knows the answer, he has the answer on him in that moment. Because every lawyer would have either one or two, some people would say two, leather pouches or boxes. And on those leather pouch, or in those leather pouches and boxes, uh, the box was called a phylactery. And in that leather pouch or box, there would be scripture written on it. Now, the interesting thing about that is the scripture that was written on uh, the, the uh, paper in there would have been Deuteronomy 6, 3 through 11. That would always be in there, along with other text. So when Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Deuteronomy 6, 3 through 11. So when Jesus is asked this question by this theologian of the day, and Jesus puts the question back on him, what does the law say? How do you read it? What is the summation of law? How do you get to this place called eternal life? He summarizes the scriptures that he's literally wearing at that moment. And again, Jesus is pointing to the fact that God has revealed this answer through his written word. But because of our fallenness, because of our inclination to sin, God has also sent the living word. He has sent Jesus himself to us. And so Jesus answers him after he tells the summation of the law in verse 27. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus says, actually, you've given the right answer. You understand what the law says, the, the whole core of the law, and what it means and what eternal life means. Now, the New Testament tells us the very same thing. The New Testament over and over points to the fact that the great commandment, which is very important to us, very important around here, uh, is the whole summation of the law. We see it in Galatians 5.14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, Paul wrote. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or we see uh, uh, John take this concept, 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death to life. We know we experience salvation because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. He says we know we've experienced this salvation because we love our neighbor, if you will. 
1 John 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother or his neighbor. In John 15, 12, Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Because Jesus came, fulfilled the law perfectly, giving them an example, and says, you go do what I did. Paul mentions this in Romans 13, 8 through 10. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves, uh, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law, Paul said in Romans. James says the same thing. If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And with that, you are doing well, James says. And so over and over throughout Scripture from beginning to end, we see this as the summation of the law. We are called to love God supremely and also to love our neighbor as ourselves, love every neighbor God would put in front of us. But again, the, the lawyer, the theologian's question is flawed. It's flawed because he asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, all of us have, um, you know, seen a show or a television, you know, movie or whatever, uh, or read a book where someone who is set to receive an inheritance, um, you know, they act up, act out, whatever it is, and, and the threat to them is, uh, you know, I will cut you out of my will. Or I, I will take your inheritance away from you. you got to understand, that's a very modern thing. In the first century, you don't do anything to receive an inheritance. The only thing you did was that you were born and you didn't do that, your mom did. Right? So you don't do anything in order to receive an inheritance. The inheritance is a gift that's given to you. It is received simply because you were born. It has to do with heredity or birthright. So the whole idea that you would do away with someone's inheritance is just foreign in the, in the first century context. That's why whenever you uh, read the story of the prodigal son, you know, we read that as modern readers and we go, well, why in the world would he give him his inheritance? You know, he's going to go squander the thing, but he had to because you would never withhold that. And so this lawyer, he knows this. This is the world he lives in. And so in asking this question of Jesus, he's trying to trick him, really. Is there something that I can do to receive an inheritance from God? Really? The question's flawed. So is the second question, actually. Jesus, it goes on, verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, this is the lawyer, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Not only is the first question flawed, what can I do to receive an inheritance? You would never do anything to receive an inheritance in the first century context. The second question is flawed because he's asking it 
from a selfish point of view. Notice the question. It's who is my neighbor? Who is going to be a neighbor to me is the way it reads. So again, the text tells us that he's trying to test Jesus and now he's trying to justify himself. And so Jesus tells him an exaggerated story. We're very familiar with this story and so it doesn't really sound as exaggerated to us, but in the first century, this is exaggerated. Here's the story. You've probably heard it. Jesus replied, verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Verse 31, now by chance a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. And then Jesus looks at the lawyer. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Notice the language. Be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. The man's original question is, who is my neighbor? Almost from a selfish point of view, who's going to be a neighbor to me? And Jesus turns it around and he says, no, who proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers. And then in verse 37, the lawyer had to reply, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, yep, you go and do likewise. Now, I said this was an exaggerated story, and here's why. Um, in the first century, uh, a traveler going from Jerusalem to Jericho, it would have been foolish, absolutely foolish, or at best, irresponsible for anyone to travel this road alone. No one did it. In fact, from Jerusalem to Jericho, there's a ravine that runs through and it just zigzags through the desert. And if you just look out through the desert, you can't see it. But whenever you get up on it, you realize there's a huge ravine with a stream running through it. It's called the Wadi Kilt. Now, in the first century, they called it the Way of Blood. And the reason why they called it the way of blood is because robbers would hang out and zig and zag through the desert. Robbers would hang out, especially at night, and they would hide out. And as travelers would come by, they would rob them, they would beat them and, and take their possessions. And so no one would ever have journeyed from Jerusalem to Jericho alone unless it was an extreme circumstance. And people in the first century, when they heard that someone was traveling alone and they were traveling the Wadi Kilt or the Way of Blood, and they heard that they were robbed or they were beaten or something, people in the first century would just say, that's their fault. They shouldn't have been traveling alone. They should have never done that. Don't they know any better? Right? But here's the thing. We do the same today, don't we? We look at people and we say, you know, well, they got themselves into that mess. They should have never been there in the beginning. We look at people and we make the same assumptions or we say the same statements about them. So as Jesus is telling this story, the people are sitting around listening and going, well, this is crazy. Why would anybody in their right mind do that? So uh, all of a sudden three people come by. 
Now, in order to understand these three people, you got to understand that there were three, um, there were three kind of classes of people who served in the temple. The first were the priests. They were the most important. So these are the ones who performed the sacrifices and those type of things. The second were the Levites of the tribe of Levi. These are the ones who assisted the priest many times. And then the third was what it would have been Jewish laymen. And these are people who served in the temple in various ways. They did a whole lot of different stuff uh, in the temple. So it was the priests, the Levites, and the laymen, the Jewish laymen. So when Jesus is telling his story, the first person who happens to walk by, notice by chance, is the priest. That's not by accident. So the priest would have been the first tier. So the priest comes by. Now, in the first century, there were a lot of priests who actually lived in Jericho. Jericho is one of the oldest cities on the planet. Some people call it the very center of the earth, and some people even claim it is the oldest city. Uh, but uh, it, it's a beautiful place. It's very hot and very dry. But a lot of priests lived there in the first century, and then they would travel up to Jerusalem uh, for their two weeks of service, and then they would travel back home. Now, the problem, though, here is that when this priest comes upon this man who's been beaten, uh, there, there are two issues. There are two main social identifiers in the first century about who you were, especially what your ethnicity was. The first one was language. It, it was the scholarly Jews who would use Hebrew, right? A lot of people who were peasants, although they be Jewish, would use Aramaic. Greek was being spoken at that time, Phoenician, obviously. And if you lived around the Sea of Galilee, a lot of times you would speak Syriac. And so your language and what, which language you use actually mattered to help identify where you come, just like we talk about accents to the, today, right? I know I have a southern accent. I kind of like it. It's okay. So, <laughs> but in the first century, language was varied. And the type of language that you spoke and your accent, yes, actually could pinpoint where you were from. The second identifier was how you dressed. So how you dressed outwardly, and we can see this in extreme ways if we look at people from different countries, especially if those countries are far apart, uh, even today. But how you dressed mattered because it was a cultural identifier. It identified who you were and what tribe you were a part of, if you want to put it that way. Well, when this priest walks up on this man, there's a problem. The problem is the man is unconscious, which means he cannot talk, and he's been stripped and beaten. So he has no clothes on. So as the priest walks up, he cannot tell, he can't have a conversation with him to hear his language, and he does not know what he was wearing before he was beaten. Now under the law, this priest would have been obligated to help any devout Jew, but the priest cannot determine if he's Jewish. So he justifies himself. He goes around him, and he goes on his way. Next comes the Levite. Remember, Levites help serve the priest, right? So the Levite is coming down the road. Now, have you ever left church at maybe the same time as you know, someone in your family, and you know that they're ahead of you on the road? You know they're going to beat you home for lunch or something like that. The same thing in the first century. If the priests and Levites have been serving in the temple and both are going back to Jerusalem, a lot of times they're all friends. They know who is ahead of them and who's behind them on the road. And they would look out for each other, especially whenever you have to walk. It's a hot climate and all that, right? And so the Levite is going down the road. He probably knows the priest is ahead of him. And he walks up on this man. Now he has a problem. 
The problem is he knows that if the priest passed this guy by, he can't help him. Remember, he serves the priest in the temple. If the Levite stops and helps this man and takes him into Jerusalem and helps him, and the priest walked by him, it would have been an insult to the priest. It would have been an insult to his boss in that sense. The Levite would have been showing that he was more righteous than the priest. He helped this poor man when the priest just passed him by. So he stuck. He either helps the man, which is a little risk to job security, or he just keeps on walking. His assumption is the priest passed him by. He must have had a good reason to pass him by, so I'm going to pass him by as well. So then the third person comes up. The third person is not a Jewish layman. This is, again, exaggerated story. It is a Samaritan. Now, to understand the Samaritans, we have to remember that the Samaritans were half or quarter or whatever it may have been Jewish because in 720 BC, the Assyrians captured the 10 tribes and they deported a lot of them and they were scattered, never really to be seen again. That's 2 Kings 17, if you want to read that. The king of Assyria also took Assyrians and transplanted them in Samaria. And then through that, there was intermarriage. And so, the, you know, the Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Most of us know that. But with the Assyrians going into Samaria, they brought their own gods with them. That was a huge problem because when Ezra went to rebuild the temple, uh, the Samaritans actually offered to help, history tells us, and uh, Ezra and the Jews said, no, we don't want your help. So the Samaritans get upset. They go build their own temple on Mount Gerasim, right? And we see that mentioned throughout the Gospels. Uh, the woman at the well, for example. So they go and they build their own temple on Mount Gerasim. And the interesting thing about their worship is their worship and the reading of Scripture only involved the Pentateuch, only involved the first five books of the Bible, the, the, the books of Moses. So they didn't have David, they didn't have the Psalms, they didn't have Proverbs, they didn't have the prophets. Only the five books. Any of you have seen The Chosen, uh, there's this moment where Jesus walks up and is like, hmm, only five books, what should I read? That's why, right? Now, on Mount Gerasim, the reason why they built the temple there, because that's the place where they claimed that Abraham offered Isaac. They claimed that Melchizedek met Abraham, and they claimed that's where Moses built his first altar after leaving Egypt. A lot of scholars and historians point out that the Samaritans at that time actually tr twisted scripture. They actually, well, they did have a reductionistic view of it at best because they only reduced it down to five books, but they also twisted history in order to build this temple. So you can see there's a dilemma here between the Samaritans and the Jews. Absolutely hated, but again, Jesus is telling an exaggerated story. And he tells the story of this outsider who comes in. And that's how the Samaritans would have been seen, as an outsider. An outsider comes in, an outsider binds up uh, the man's wounds, an outsider pours oil and wine on the bandages, because that's how they would do it many times. They would wrap first, then pour on oil and wine so it would soak in to heal the wounds. An outsider put the man on his own animal. An outsider was the one that took him to an inn. An outsider took care of him, and an outsider paid his debt, not only at that moment, but also in the future. And then Jesus looks at him and says, which one was his neighbor? He says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. The question is, do what? And how do you do it? What is it that Jesus wants him to do? Well, it really all depends on where you see yourself in the story. Because the story is meant to cause us to say, I can do that. 
and I can't do that. The story is meant for us to say, I can be the good Samaritan and say, actually, I can't be the good Samaritan. I can't be the good Samaritan because I'm the one that's wounded. I'm the one that's beaten. I'm the one that's unconscious. I'm the one that's been left for dead. Again, the question is, where do you put yourself in the story? What Jesus is actually trying to say to the, or saying to the lawyer on this day is, you want to do something. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You want to do something, but first you have to receive something. Whenever we read the Good Samaritan story, a lot of times we put ourselves as the Good Samaritan. We kind of moralize the story and we say, well, I'm going to go do good things for people. But actually, Jesus is the outsider. He is the Good Samaritan. Jesus is the one that shows mercy. Again, we have to be careful making ourselves the hero of the text. But the truth is, we're the traveler. We're the one who is at fault or has been irresponsible. We're the one that's trying to journey alone through life. We're the one that's been beaten by other people's sin and we're actually dead in our own sins. That's us in the story. And Jesus is the outsider who has stepped in. Jesus is the one who stepped in to bind up our wounds because of his compassion. And Jesus is the one that never passes us by. Jesus is the one that pays our debt and pays it in full. And then once we receive this from him, then our charge then is to go and do likewise. And to go and show people mercy means then to go and show people Jesus. Because we're showing them his mercy because it's not our mercy. It doesn't originate within us. We're more like the priest and the Levite if we want to put ourselves somewhere else in the story. But once we realize we're the ones that were left for dead, dead in our trespasses and sin, and Jesus, the outsider, has now broken into humanity to bind up our wounds and bring healing to us, now we can go show that same kind of mercy to people, meaning, i.e., show people who he is. But again, if you moralize the story and you make yourself the hero, what you're left with is a form of works righteousness, aren't you? It's just, you just be better, you just do better, you just go do enough good things out there, be a good Samaritan enough times, you know, and then if you show mercy enough times to enough people or to all people at all times, which no one can do, then maybe, maybe you can inherit eternal life. And that is, again, severely flawed. Because this is not about works righteousness at all. It's about once we receive his mercy, we actually don't have to work to share it. You ever notice that? Let me put it this way. You ever heard the phrase, you can't hide money? <laughs> Jared said that the other day, but anyway. You can't hide money. Well, you can't hide salvation. You can't hide mercy. You can't hide grace. When you've received it, you will share it. That's what it means to go and do likewise. Remember, Luke 10, 24. Jesus says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the main thing we rejoice about. And you cannot hide that kind of rejoicing. So when it comes to the Good Samaritan, here's what I want us to leave with. We have to realize that Jesus is the outsider 
breaking into humanity so that you and I can be a renewed human. The image of God restored in us. And then he sends us out to the rest of humanity. But again, we don't do the mercy. It's not our mercy. We don't do the saving. We're not the Messiah. He does. He does. And I think that's what I would summarize as the gospel of the Good Samaritan. Is that Jesus is the outsider that has broken in. And he confronts all of us religious people with that. And we have to you know, fight off the tendency to make ourselves the hero of it. And realize he's the true hero and we're the one wounded and broken and in need of a hero. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the ways in which it speaks to us. And as we've spent a number of minutes looking at this text tonight, we know that we've just scratched the surface of it. But we thank you for what you reveal to us. And I pray that as you speak to our hearts, uh, corporately and individually, that we would receive what we need to receive from you. And Lord, that we would go and do likewise. In Jesus' name, amen.